3: And then Dan Ives over at Wedbush, who, as we know, is definitely someone who's a well-known tech bull. And you actually released- a
5: Wait, new you have to do a fashion this update this. before yes, you do we? anything. <laughs>
3: we have to take a look at this. Describe,
6: Describe shirt. The-
3: and, and Dan, you know, Multicolor we are shirt.
1: streaming on YouTube, so you can't hide the shirt. It's, <laughs> it's out there. Super okay. Now I love it. you actually see the shirt. Exactly.
3: It's great. So you were talking to your clients about how you still see tech stocks gaining about 12 to 15% in the second half of the year even after this gangbuster rally that we've seen in growth stocks, obviously led by AI. Tell us about your case when it comes to continued strength there in the second half, potentially.
7: Look, we believe it's a new tech bull market that's forming. And ultimately, as someone that's covered tech going back to the 90s, this I view as a 1995 internet moment. In other words, Ooh, not a 1999 okay. dot-com bubble burst. You know, I believe based on everything we've done, this is the biggest transformational tech trend that we've seen. And we were talking about a trillion dollars of incremental spend that's now coming into the tech ecosystem, which is why, in my opinion, this is a green light to own tech. I think it's gonna get broader and broader in terms of the rally. And, and many of the bears that continue to say this is hype, they're not talking to the CIOs, the CTOs, mm-hmm. the IT spend, where Paul, I think it's something unlike I've ever seen. Uh, and that's kind of where I wanted
1: to go, Dan, because you've got this perspective, long-time perspective in the tech space. In your words, when you're talking to your institutional investor clients, and I know you've been on the road a lot, what, how do you define AI, artificial intelligence? Because I hear it thrown about by every company that walks through that door, whether they're selling pet food or whether they're a tech company, it's everywhere, it seems like.
7: Well, ultimately, it's really, like, when you think about the shift to cloud and what we've seen with data processing yep. power, it was all about you have data, whether it's coming consumer, tech, but how do you ultimately monetize? How do you ultimately mine that data? When you look at the models coming out, of course, it's Nadella, Microsoft, Chat, GPT really leading. Yep. It, Nvidia, in terms of the foundation, this is the start of what I'll call as an AI revolution. The use cases now that we're seeing—I'll just give you an example. Developers, they potentially now could do things in an hour that took them three weeks. Advertising could ultimately there's there's use cases yep, things that could that. take yep. a month now could take basically two hours. And, the, and and who benefits? It's the software, it's the chips, it's the ecosystem. That's why I believe this, this is a gold rush that really is going to define, in my opinion, a, a, a new bull market for tech that's just starting.
3: When you were talking about how you're having these conversations with these industry players, what specifically are they telling you and where are those pockets of strength when it comes to, say, enterprise spending?
7: Yeah, and I think part of it is we go back. We sat here in January, right? Hard landing, dark clouds, Armageddon. The whole. So, so obviously none of that's happened. But now the difference is at enterprise from a CIO perspective, they've gone from yellow light to now potentially green light, and you're starting to see ultimately they're looking they're looking over the road and they're not seeing cars company and it's AI that today is less than one percent of IT spend. We think next year that's potentially 8 to 10%. Mm, wow. And that's, that's ultimately, look, in my view, and, it's we, and Paul and I have talked about it for decades, is that the transformational tech themes, if you put them in, and you talk about, you know, evaluation downgrade today on Meta, you put them in a little P.E. box on some historical, doing your spreadsheet evaluations from your office building, I get it. Yep. To me, you can't put them in that box. That's why ultimately you've missed the Apples, the Teslas, the Netflix, the Metas, and everything else if you don't understand the transformational growth theme. And that's why right now I think it's the fourth industrial revolution that's playing out.
1: Interesting. Now what we've seen, and I guess it feels to me, Dan, that we are in the, the very top of the first inning here. And what we're, saying, or what we're hearing from people like you and, and from others in the tech space is just buy some of the really good Tech names that that received the the tech spend anyway. They're going to be on the forefront. When and and that's a Microsoft, for example, and, and some others, and, and and the chip companies. When do you think there will be that Facebook moment, that Google moment, where where a company born of AI, like Google was for search, Facebook was for social. When do you think we'll have that f- first big AI? born company and where might it come from? Well, I
7: think also a lot of those AI born companies potentially might get acquired before they're actually born. And I right. think that's yep. where you're yep. going to see massive consolidation across tech, right? A lot of these tech companies have more cash in some countries. But then I think if you look at it by the I think over the next few quarters, we're going to have what I'll call that Apple 2007 iPhone moment that internet 1995 moment. We saw it with the guidance heard around the world from Jensen and Nvidia, the $4 billion guidance raise. But I think that's what we're starting to see right now. So even when we come to earnings over the next month, of course investors are going to focus on what numbers look like, guidance, next quarter or two. But there's a much bigger story playing out here, and that's why I think a lot of these tech names continue to be Rock or Gibraltar-like.
3: I'm glad you brought up Apple because there's a lot of companies like that where during the internet boom, you might not have realized certain companies to that would have benefited years later. Where do you think are the winners that might be getting overlooked and where do you think potentially are the losers right now that are just behind the game?
7: Sure. And I think when you look at Apple, Cook continues to play chess where others play checkers. And and I think it's an install based play, best install based in the world from a consumer perspective. iPhone 15, I believe is going to be a mini super cycle, AI this is just the start of what's going to be that drum roll in terms of what I view as an AI app store over the next 12 to 18 months. I think that's being overlooked as an AI play. Mm -hmm. I think Salesforce being overlooked from an AI perspective. I do think you have some pure play AI names, even like you look at names like Palantir and others that are really from a use case perspective. And I think it's really the, the software ecosystem. I think it's the software names right now that I really put an asterisk around because that's going to get the predominant amount mm-hmm. of AI spend.
3: What about Adobe? Because I feel like that was a player maybe people weren't focusing enough on and then all of a sudden we had that strong report when it comes to that AI potential there.
7: Well, no, I think you saw from Adobe, you saw it from MongoDB and I think those are the barometers that we're now starting to see. Adobe, that's been just a phenomenal job that they've been able to mine into the install base. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg of what I believe we're going to see over the next month. Look, we can maybe start to do some sort of you know, clock to see who could actually say AI the most in their conference posts. Right. And that's why- Kroger
3: and, mentioned it at yeah, times. And, and, and
7: to that, maybe could some get above 100? But that's mm-hmm. why the big question is going to be, who are the fakes yep. versus the real ones? Yep. So
3: what do you think are the risks to your bull case?
7: So the risk, clearly macro, things take longer. You've had multiple expansion for six months. Investors are patient. But then all of a sudden, if it doesn't come to fruition, you know, and then I think the geopolitical situation, U.S., China continues to sort of be that, you know, lingering dark cloud. But this is going to be patience. And that's why I view it as these are moments that happen every 20, 30 years. And right now, we just happen to be living through what I view as a 1995 internet moment. All right, we mentioned Google earlier, and to Jess's point, losers, initially, when this kind
1: of hit my consciousness six months ago, AI, uh, I said, boy, that's gonna be a real competitor, maybe the first real competitor to Google, when you think about just search in general. How do you think about Google and its position vis-a-vis?
7: Clearly AI? at first, black eye in terms of yep. coming out, they missed him, Microsoft, you know, beat him to the game. I think for Google, the golden goose, it's actually not search. I think it's really the cloud. I mean, that is what, from an enterprise perspective, Mm -hmm. they could potentially redefine themselves on AI. And this is also, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not just one player. We're talking about, what we view conservatively, 800 billion, potentially in the trillions of now, incremental IT spend, where six months ago was not here.
1: Yep, just, uh, it's extraordinary. And you got to think... You know, a a winner like Google with right. the, with the you know engineering chops, not to mention the balance sheet will will we'll be a player there. Hey Dan, thanks so much for joining thanks us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming uh, in you. studio. Despite your shirt. Despite the shirt. <laughs> we'll, um it's good stuff. Uh Dan Ives, he's a senior uh, analyst at Woodbush Securities and what we love about Dan is a he's very clear in his his points and his convictions, Definitely but he's got the perspective to say, hey, let's put this into context of what we've seen in past cycles. Hey, he's and been doing
3: this a long time. He's
1: been doing it a long time and uh, it's uh, certainly helpful to us newbies trying to get our heads around uh, what is AI. Looking at this market here, um, you know, kind of hanging in here. We're up about one third of 1% on the S&P 500, getting it, uh, NASDAQ up about a half a percent. So uh, tech, as, as Dan has been saying for a long time, continues uh, to perform
6: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You
1: know, one of the numbers. Uh, that always sticks out at me is when we look at the jolts number you know the job openings. yes that's a number that historically ran five six million job openings but it's been close to ten right consistently you know know, i'm like where did all these people go during the pandemic and one issue that comes up is there's some ages maybe some people are kind of aging out of the workforce but uh i want to get a sense of kind of you know what ageism means in the labor market uh and for the economy and our next guest uh Did a lot of work on that. Michaela Grimm, Senior Economist uh, for Allianz, uh, joins us uh, via Zoom. So Michaela, talk to us about kind of what your work showed as it relates to ageism in the workforce. Are people just simply aging out of the workforce?
8: Um, What we saw, especially when we looked at the pension systems, where we see the need that people should work longer or um, should stay longer in the, work, uh, in the working age population um, to cushion the demographic um, effect on the pension systems, but on the labor markets as well, is that when politicians propose the increase of the retirement age, it's often answered with protests like we saw in France, because people are afraid that they don't find a job in higher ages and that any increase in retirement age just means longer unemployment before retirement and in in the end, a kind of a hidden pension cut. And um, these um, fears um, are not out of the blue because we see that in higher ages, the chances to be unemployed for longer are higher. The long-term unemployment rates of the age group 55 plus are much higher than in the average workforce population between 25 and and 54 for example and if um, older workers apply for a new job they are often um, facing um, stereotypes about older workers and uh, given these um, environment many people who get unemployed after the age of 55 uh, either drop out of the labor force or um, decide to to go into early retirement. How does this differentiate when you're
3: looking on particular regions and countries, say the US versus Europe?
8: In the U.S., we see a lower rate of um, longer, uh, unemployment in higher ages, and it's already a little bit higher, the the activity ratio, than in the EU, for example. And we see also that in countries where the retirement ages are already higher, like in Sweden, for example, or in Singapore, we see much higher activity ratios among the older workforce population.
1: So, Michaela, you know, I guess I was surprised when I saw the, you know, the an um, incredible uprising, public uprising in France when they were talking about raising the retirement age. I think it was from 62 to 64 it didn't seem like that big a deal to me. Maybe that's just the a, a US bias. Did that surprise you or is that consistent with some of the some of the data you've seen?
8: Well um, from the German point of view, we were surprised as well because um, our government uh, agreed to increase the retirement age to 67 already. but. Um, We see also that in France, the unemployment ratio of older workers is higher than in Germany, for example. And therefore, um, there was the concern, for example, that if the um, government pushes the retirement age to 64, it just would mean a higher rate of or longer term of unemployment before retiring in the end. Um, We saw that in um, um, surveys that this was one big concern of, of the working age population. When we're looking at the
3: U.S. specifically, what's been the main catalyst that's keeping older workers out of the workforce longer, and how much did the pandemic end up exacerbating this?
8: We we saw in, in surveys as well that many uh, older workers decided to um, retire early, uh, but we also seen in, in, in surveys of, um, from RAP that uh, they face age discrimination, Um, that there's, for example, a wish to participate more in um, training measures, that um, there is a wish to have more flexible working hours, to be able to choose where to work, um, to have more the chance to uh, work from home, to work remotely. And um, uh, still, I think companies, or many companies, that is not only in the US, um, as we did not face the impact of demographic change um, until recently, and uh, it caused, it for example, in many countries uh, and, and now baby boomers start to retire. Um, now companies feel more the pressure to adapt to the needs of an aging workforce population. That was not the case in recent years. Um, therefore, I think since many workers since uh, still face age discrimination, um, the step to say, okay, I drop out or I take a lower-paid job, or even I have to take a lower-paid job that does not uh, fit to my qualifications, then early retirement is an option.
1: What subsidies or what support, I guess, can governments provide companies to maybe, you know, hire more older workers? Um, is there anything that is there a role that governments can play in this?
8: Uh, well, we've seen some countries that are already um, kind of um, advertising campaigns in place, like in Singapore, where the that there is a company the government tries to to push for a, a cultural change um, for change of the perception of older workers. But what governments can also do, as we see a need for reskilling, for upskilling, for um, lifelong learning, it's especially. Um, smaller companies who often cannot afford, for example, these kind of measures. So it would be one measure to uh, support companies uh, when offering training um, um, trainings for their workers. It could be also possible to support um, subsidy or grant subsidies of uh, when um, employing um, older workers coming from long term unemployment. Uh, it could also be a measure to support part-time employment. Uh, it could be a measure to say, okay, um, we reduce uh, contribution rates or taxes, um, for, um, workers uh, after a sp- after a, sp- a specific age, yep. then other measures could be when we look at the pension systems, um, to make it possible to combine work and, and, and retirement, part-time retirement, or as I said to, um, Come get away right. from the mandatory retirement age. Make retirement ages more flexible, and and for example, grant the right um, to work.
1: Yep. All right. All interesting uh, stuff there. Uh, companies, countries, politicians have to think about this as the global population continues to age.
6: You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
3: Yeah, I want to get straight to our next guest, who's a veteran investor, George Ball, yeah, say the least. chairman at Sanders Morris Harris, joins us on Zoom to discuss all things markets and his stock picks. You know, just
1: when I came on Wall Street in the mid '60s, George was, I believe, the chairman of Prudential Beige, Ooh. which Beige and Company preceded and then Prudential bought Beige, uh, one of the the top. On the street, And I'll tell you what, one of the best research departments on on the street at the time. And
3: we're excited for him to be here. George, I wanted to pick your brain because in the last couple of months, you had been making some comments about how you thought the big tech rally had run its course, but you still were thinking the broader equity market would approach new record highs this year. Are you still thinking that'll be the case for the second half of the year?
2: Uh, The majority of the experts, the pundits, seem to be on the side of the market weakening as we get further into the year. Uh, There's a bit of a war between what I call Morgan Stanley on the one hand, which is uh, predicating a 180-some dollar earnings on the S&P 500, and then the more optimistic 220-plus S&P earnings estimates of of Goldman Sachs, uh, with, again, the majority of the experts, and they are smart people. falling on the, the more negative camp. Um, I do think that they're wrong. Uh, and uh, b- by the way, I'll, I'll say that my uh, entrance to Wall Street was more in the 1970s and the 60s. But back then, uh, way back then, uh, 5% interest rates were, were common. They were accepted by business and businesses operated very profitably with comfortable profit margins. Uh, with interest rates at 5%. That's happening again today. Over the last decade, we sort of forgot that uh, managements and consumers and, and the economy can live all right with interest rates at a 5% or so level. Um, and that, I think, is an optimistic note for the market and earnings and the economy going forward. George, uh, you know, technology has been
1: such a a leader of this market really since the great financial crisis. I mean, it just felt like, you know, really leadership position in the marketplace. Do you still think that's the case here in a world where, again, you've got rising interest rates in the two-year treasuries at 4.75%? Can
2: tech still be the leader? Uh, Technology stocks have been bouncing with interest rates on the assumption that the uh, future earnings of technology companies will be uh, a function of dividends paid well well out many years from now. But get back to the base case. Technology and the changes in technology are, are what's driving growth, productivity, uh, constructive change in economies worldwide. That's not going to falter. Um, my supposition is that the big, big, uh, technology companies, the FANG Pluses, the seven stocks that have driven uh, almost all the gains in the uh, uh, S&P this year, are so darn big that they can't grow very rapidly anymore. They're great companies, they're doing extremely well, they're, they're uh, financial fortresses, but uh, simply as a matter of scale, they, they've reached the point of diminishing returns. And so, I'm looking at what uh, i term mid-tech companies as the next uh, wave of fundamentally justified, high growth, uh, high contributor companies where the stocks are way down from the perhaps unjustified levels of last year, but have a, an enormous amount of upside potential. And that's going to start to be recognized as we get into the second half of this year. So I'm saying buy mid-tech. Sell the big fangy type uh, stocks as we get into the second half of 2023.
1: George, you've held held leadership positions on Wall Street for decades. Uh, Again, going uh, all the way back to uh, E.F. Hutton and and Bayes, some of the all time iconic brands on Wall Street. What's what's your view of the business
2: of Wall Street these days? Uh, The business of Wall Street is much more commoditized these days than it was back then. but it is still the uh, fount from which money for companies uh, to grow and to uh, expand and to diversify uh, comes. And it's also probably the best place for individuals to uh, put their savings, their excess cash uh, to work. So Wall Street continues to be a marvelous place, much less humanistic than it used to be uh, but vital to the American economy. And by the way, one of our, our big national advantages, uh, it's it's uh, uh, we have the ability to create uh, money for growth much more efficiently than other economies. And it's apt to give us a competitive edge that uh, extends into the next 20 or 30 years.
3: With that said, George, we got to know, what are your top stock picks?
2: Well, uh, again, consistent with my mid-tech, Theory. Uh, I I would use as examples, specifics, but also as examples, uh, Teladoc. Teladoc reaches over 50 million Americans. Uh, It's a company that is not yet profitable, although it's cash flow positive. If they can take just a fair slice of their client or patient base and convert it to a subscription model at uh, fair economic prices. They have enormous ability to earn a great deal of money. Um, Trade Desk uh, is what the ad agencies were back in the 1960s and 70s when I started. Uh, Trade Desk is a way of placing advertising or uh, uh, seeking advertisers on an efficient basis and its ability to grow uh, exponentially over the next 10 years is I think almost uh, uh, unrivaled, uh, Mercado Libra, uh, the yep. Amazon of uh, South America and Central America is very profitable, but it's just scratching the surface. So that's a trio of mid-tech companies. They're sizable, but they're, but they're, they're converting from a uh, revenue growth model to a profit growth model.
1: George, one of the uh, themes that's really come into this market over the last year or so is artificial intelligence, AI. And we had a, a well-regarded Wall Street analyst earlier say, this is like the 1985 internet aha moment or you know, kind of like when a Google came on and we said, oh boy, this is a big moment for the internet. Um, he said it's something akin to that. Um, how do you view this thing called artificial intelligence, AI? It really seems to be the theme of some, of the tech world these
2: days, um, I'm going to sound like an old fogey, and that, <laughs> that that really bothers me. I don't want to do it. I'd rather take take a different view. Yeah, AI is a marvelous step forward because it's going to give people access in multi dimensions to all of the wealth of knowledge of uh, uh, of the world, uh, and it will. Write things. It will seek things. It will display things brilliantly and very helpfully, but but it, but it is not predictive. It is a look into the database of what's known up to now, and so I don't think it's going to be transformative in the sense of being the fuel cell of growth, the way many people are uh, predicting. I don't think it's a fad or a bubble but I think it's uh, importance in the economic future of our country and, and of the world is overstated. Uh, you, you're, you know, the past is destructive, but it's not predictive. Uh, and so AI is important, but not transformative in my perhaps geriatric view. No, it's a <laughs> perfectly relevant view. And but
1: lastly, George, I have to ask, are you in Aspen, Colorado right now?
2: <laughs> uh, no, I'm in the Salt, Colorado. If you can't quite afford to be in Aspen, you go ten miles down the I road. Was, to, all right, wherever you Besalt are in Colorado, in, I'm just, where I
1: am. All right, wherever you are in Colorado, I'm just going to suggest you might be a little overdressed. You look very <laughs> solid for Wall Street, <laughs> but I great. think for Colorado and and for Bloomberg Markets next next time you can certainly go a little bit more casual if you're in Colorado. Uh, George Ball, <laughs> everyone, uh, just uh, li- literally an iconic person uh, on Wall Street Uh, he's the chairman of Sanders Mars Harris but has really been a leader on Wall Street for decades I mean CEO level leader Uh, and it's just amazing the career he's had again I it goes all the way back to EF Hutton and you kids can look that up Uh, and company another fantastic firm bought by Prudential Securities when it became Prudential and then Prudential Securities and again one of the leading firms on the street so George has seen it all we appreciate getting a few minutes of his time
6: You're listening to The team, Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's
1: talk about our good friends at Amazon. We've all got boxes probably sitting in front of our doors as we speak. Of course. Uh, our good friends at Amazon. And then there's a little thing called Prime. I'm a huge fan of Prime. Oh, I love free it. Delivery, you get free delivery. get great. You get audio, their video service, all kinds of stuff kind of wrapped up in there. Uh, but apparently the FTC is taking mm. a look at this thing. Matt Sheltonham, uh he's a senior litigation analyst. That means he's an attorney, uh, but he's come over from the dark side and is working <laughs> on Wall Street and giving us some good research uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence here. Matt, talk to us just Describe what the issue F- the FTC has with Amazon and its Prime business.
9: Yeah, Paul, we saw this this emerge somewhat surprisingly last week when when the FTC filed this lawsuit on Wednesday, alleging that Amazon has tricked or duped millions of consumers into signing up for for Prime and 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 in particular for the automatic renewal of of those Prime membership. Um, and, and, and the allegation is that that violates a federal law and that, that Amazon's potentially on the hook for, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or more in, in damages for, for tricking consumers into staying with a program that they don't really want to be a part of
3: and it's interesting because going through this it says the ftc was talking about how consumers must click through five pages on the desktop web store or six on the mobile app to cancel prime so clearly making it pretty difficult right for consumers to try to cancel this i mean how much and how far do you think this potential case could potentially go
9: Yeah. So i mean that's exactly the the allegation what what what's really the big unknown here though is 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 what is is simple the law requires a simple mechanism for for subscribers to cancel automatic renewal plans like this how about to talk and- to
1: the cable telephone company the cable television companies
9: how hard is it- that to cancel exactly and that's exactly what you're going to hear from Amazon in this case is l- look at all these other businesses that make it so difficult you got you want to cancel your gym membership you got to go <laughs> into the gym to to you know talk find somebody to talk to other companies require you to call somebody on the line here we're talking about six clicks and and yeah there are some extra hoops along the way but there's very little guidance in the law on what is simple and what isn't. And so, you know, I think there's a there's a, a real argument for Amazon to make here that the FTC is really straining to to argue that 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 this six clicks process violates the law.
1: I mean, to me, first of all, I, I don't feel like like I was duped. Um,
7: I
3: actually had an issue when it came to Audible When it comes to their uh, podcast, I actually went through this a couple months ago where I canceled and then kept getting charged and had to call them and go through this. So it's interesting now that I'm reading through all all of this, but I kind of felt a little miffed there when that had happened to me.
1: (laughs) So, Matt, what is what's Amazon's uh, M.O. when dealing with regulators? Do they just like settle these things out of court or do they fight them to the tooth and nail?
9: Yeah, so, I mean, it, for, for a company like Amazon, it's really hard for a suit like this to, to be too threatening. But, but one reason it does matter is that the FTC's power to impose penalties is very broad. In theory, the FTC can impose $50,000 per violation, and that can be counted by... User, so you get you start to go 100 million times 50,000, and you get to some gigantic number with lots of zeros at the end. So, <laughs> Amazon has to pay attention to, to to this, especially when when the leader of the FTC, Lena Khan, is looking to to be very aggressive in grow, going after companies like like Amazon. So, you know, I think Amazon would be happy to settle it for a small, uh, you know, a, a small figure, you know, relatively quickly. It's 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 unclear whether the FTC would go on you know be on board with that right away, but you know I I really do think Amazon has a good chance to to prevail in this litigation, but it's going to take time. And so I, I do expect it to play out for a couple of years um, be, before we see a resolution. But it's really hard to see the FTC winning a material damage amount against Amazon here, ultimately.
3: So the timetable, like you said, being potentially a couple of years when it comes to this.
9: Yeah, that's what I think. So, I, you know, this was just filed last Wednesday. I think you're, you're likely to see a couple rounds of this litigation. And you know, the big risk for Amazon is this gets to a jury that, that could, could potentially offer, you know, a, a damages award in, in the millions or, or even billions of dollars. That's what you can't let happen. But there are two steps in the litigation process before we get there. One, Amazon can file a motion to dismiss the whole thing and says, look, this doesn't even state a valid claim. I don't think that will work. It has a, it has a chance. But then, even after a, a year or two of discovery, when they dive into the evidence, Amazon can say, look, F- the FTC collected all this evidence, and there's still not a, a case that should go to a jury. That's when I think Amazon has a really good good argument to the judge to say, look, Amazon's process may not have been perfect, but it, you know, it's probably enough to qualify as a simple mechanism under this unclear standard under the law. So yeah, I think that's going to take a couple of years before we, we see any action, and certainly before it goes to a jury in, in a trial-like setting.
1: Hey, Matt, we've been talking to, to Jen Rhee, who covers antitrust for Bloomberg Intelligence, and just talking about kind of the, the regulatory environment out there for businesses, particularly big tech, and it's really tough for big tech companies to really do anything here. From your perspective, from the litigation side, what's the environment like out there for business? Is it, is it tougher to do business? Is the government really taking a harder line?
9: It, it's certainly there's been a change certainly in you know the past 5 to 10 years well in in Washington DC on on the regulation side you know we had this idea that for 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 a couple decades like it's best to get out of the way of the internet let the internet thrive everything has sort of changed in in terms of policy in terms of okay maybe we went too far in that direction and you're seeing the same thing on the litigation side where class action lawyers the opportunities to go after companies like 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 Meta and Google for you know potentially addictive social media. You're seeing Section 230, the liability field that has long protected these companies. Suddenly, people are suggesting maybe we, we've we've read that liability field too broadly. Maybe we should be able to sue these companies uh, uh, about harms. And so it, it's a it's it's an onsla- onslaught of, of different attacks that they didn't face five or ten years ago. That doesn't mean they're going to lose these cases. The, you know, the companies have strong defenses to a lot of the claims, uh, but it's definitely a more difficult environment than it was a couple years back.
1: And that's why Bloomberg Intelligence has a bunch of analysts and lawyers and smart people down yes. in Washington with their fingers on the pulse of what's happening down there so they can provide some very valuable research to Bloomberg customers. So Matt Schuttenhelm is certainly one of them. He's a senior litigation analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence based down in in Washington, D.C., so we'll have to follow that for Amazon. The numbers, you know, relative to its market cap aren't material, but it goes to, you know, one of their one of their core business practices here, so we'll see how they uh, continue to fight this. But, again, it's tough to fight the government and the Federal Trade Commission, but I guess if anybody can do it,
6: uh, it's Amazon. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130.
1: Let's get right to our next guest because we got him live in studio. Yes, Yes, in studio.
5: I love this.
3: I
6: know. Kevin Tynan,
1: Senior Automotive Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down on our Princeton campus, uh, but occasionally he gets up to the big town. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Lots of ways to go here, but first got to start your mercedes that you drive is a v12 it is does that mean it has 12 cylinders
5: 12 cylinders and i have six in my car (laughs) that's right so you have twice as many that's correct why and it's and it's here's the beautiful thing is it's a 2001 roadster v12 with i don't know 96 thousand miles on it so my carbon footprint is actually smaller than anybody who made them build a new ev (laughs) <laughs> all
1: right, that's. I right, say so I had to clear that up there. I thought I was a tough guy with six cylinders, but you got you driving around twelve. Great. All right, let's start with Ford. Ford cutting some jobs here. Why?
5: Yeah, you know what I thought was interesting about this was that you don't have this condition in the industry, or at least in North America, of oversupply, right? Like too big, too much product, too much production capacity, and we need to cut back. You know, inventory on the ground industry-wide now in the U.S. is about half what it was at the peak, which would be, peak volume year was 2016, 17 and a half million. We'll do 15 this year, 15 and a half at the outside. You know, so inventory is really in line with demand for the most part, uh, and you're seeing rationalization of costs still, which my conclusion is, is that this industry is very different than what it used to be, which was a lot of fixed costs, a lot of overhead, produce, 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 Mm -hmm. figure out how to sell it tomorrow, by giving it away, incentives, discounting, lease deals, whatever it is. And to me, these job cuts really show that the mindset of the manufacturers, auto manufacturers, is we're not going back to that world. Oh, okay.
3: I wanted to turn toward Tesla because we are seeing its stock higher more than 1% today. So that is pushing discretionary shares higher. And obviously it's waiting in the S&P 500 close to about 2%. We did see that downgrade from Goldman Sachs on Tesla earlier this week just because of the difficult pricing environment. But we saw that huge run Tesla had been on uh, that was snapped earlier this month. Obviously it was a 13 session span. Stock gained over 40%. I know that Paul's been watching RSI levels very closely. <laughs> So it actually got to around 88, uh, 88 earlier this month, uh, obviously above 70s at overbought level. But what are you seeing when it comes to Tesla stock there? And does it make sense that we've seen a little bit of a pullback after such a strong run like that?
5: Yeah, well, the difficult part, you know, as an analyst is to is to make sense of what the Tesla stock does. It's its own product right? Um, compared to what the fundamentals of the company or of the industry are. So. You know, I think the, the longer we go, we see that this is an automaker, right? There's obviously big uh, technology competitive advantages, at least perceived. And we saw the idea of the charging with GM and Ford signing on with that, that pushes the stock price higher. But ultimately, this is an automaker with automaker demand issues. I was actually driving around with my wife this weekend. <laughs> And we drove by one of the malls, the Quaker Bridge Mall. Oh, and yeah. there's there in the parking lot, there's overflow Tesla inventory as far as the eye can see. I actually made it her really- pull over and <laughs> I got out and took pictures for myself. But, you know, so, so when you look at it in the, in, in, from the perspective of a metal bender that needs to produce and sell, um, and you take some of that technology angle away from it, you're going to have those periods where the stock just just adjusts yep. and then you're gonna have periods where there's an announcement and it makes a big difference to the upside. And
1: one of the things I don't, I'm still trying to get a sense of is if I were a Tesla investor or, or an analyst is kind of where it fits into a world that's going completely electric. Now they get all the credit in the world for being first and being really, really, really good. But in a day it's, as you suggest, it's a metal bending business and Ford, GM, VW. So when I think about Tesla, rivian lucid all these other ones how do you think this industry is going to shake out
5: yeah i think we we're through a period where where markets investors talked about the auto industry like it was the tech industry or or these were tech companies and they always have been right automakers have always been ahead of the curve technology wise developed some great things over the years and i think there was this belief that because of tesla that this entire industry was now all of a sudden a technology industry so what you get is you're either going to get every other automaker that is essentially doing and can do the same things as tesla be considered tech companies and deserve those valuations Mm -hmm. or you're going to get the ones that had the wild technology valuations you know recalibrated down to automakers and i think that's the that's the greater likelihood. Ford and GM are never going to be and have never been valued like that. And I think the reality would be more that the EV and technology companies would be valued more as automakers than the reverse.
3: And our friend Matt Miller actually interviewed Ford CEO Jim Farley about a month ago. It was actually toward late May about cost cuts, auto prices, EVs, when it comes to Ford in position to some of these other competitors that we're talking about and obviously its outlook for the next few years, do you think that's sustainable and and do you think it could happen?
5: Well, yeah, I mean, I think profitability is going to drive adoption, right? Um, these, These are automakers, the legacy automakers are making a lot of money doing what they're good at, which is trucks and SUVs, and then being asked or forced into <laughs> this transition to EV when it's not really ready. And I understand the concept of disruption and that's what happens and some things are messy during the transition. But you know, during the period where we transitioned to truck from car, that was profitable on the first day. Mm-hmm. Right? So now you have, you know, Tesla leading the way, but the government's starting to get involved with uh, credits and infrastructure spending, motivating the consumer to demand these things that the manufacturer can't necessarily make money on just yet. And it's and it's a, it's a messy transition period right now because you don't want to give up profitable things to do unprofitable things in this market right now.
1: You know, I drove the Ford F-150 electric one and A, it's the first time I drove a pickup truck, probably the last. I don't drive, I'm a Wall Street guy, I'm not driving, kind of, I, my son's got one, but, um, and it was my first electric yeah. vehicle, and boy, it blew me away in terms of the power and the torque and things like that, is the belief in Detroit that the average pickup truck driver will demand an electric version?
5: Well, I guess it's going to depend, I mean, the towing capacity, the range, you know, there's, and, and look, and what I would say is this, is that, it's why we have segments it's why we have vehicles with different capabilities you know so different drivetrains i got 12 cylinders you got six (laughs) you know like that's how make the world go around so so the idea that maybe the technological singularity of internal combustion being traded for the singularity of electrification for me is a difficult concept because i feel like there is a place there's people that need, but I'm not sure we're ready to say 100. This is your only option in terms of drivetrain technology.
3: I hear you're speaking at a Bloomberg Intelligent event today.
5: Yeah, right upstairs. Uh, All right. In, in about and what what are we doing there? That's uh, the BI Lithium conference. So I'm the I'm the Square. You're the yeah, that's uh, right. A, you're the auto guy. I'm the Square Peg. <laughs> anyway, just one. what what is
1: the <laughs> we got 30 seconds? Left, okay, what's the consensus out there on the street about? Lithium batteries. Are we? Is there going to be enough stuff? Are we going to be able to get
5: them all? And no, that's and that's one of the things. And I was out last week speaking at a couple of dealer conventions, uh, Louisiana dealers, uh, Virginia dealers, and uh, that that's the big question. Is you know we hear this hundred percent by whatever date, you know, and and it's um, when you when you total up the market share and the volume, it just doesn't compute with. The materials that right. we have access to you know and and the most cynical of them would say look we're essentially trading our dependence on foreign oil for yeah. our dependence on China materials at this point Um, but a lot of people don't want to talk about that (laughs) but you will (laughs) that's why we bring
1: Kevin along Kevin Tynan old school auto Kevin Tynan senior automotive analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence joining us here live in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio we appreciate that
6: you're listening to the tape catch our live program Bloomberg Markets weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio the TuneIn app Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app you can also listen live on Amazon on Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. One thing we don't
1: talk about, we probably should, is it's significant uh, you know, asset class, if you will, alternative asset class, which is jewelry. Yes. Our next guest can help us do that. Ankur Daga joins us. He's the CEO of Angara, uh, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Um, Ankur, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, great to be here. Tell us about your company. What do you guys do at Ankara?
4: Um, So we specialize in colored gemstones, so ruby, emerald, sapphire. We are vertically integrated, so we do everything from buy from the mines, cut and polish gemstones, design jewelry, manufacture jewelry, and retail over the web in over 30 countries.
3: And you grew up in the jewelry industry. Talk to us about how you got started.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I I did. From the age of five, I was going to my dad's wholesale business. And and I initially vowed that I would never come back into the industry because (laughs) it was quite antiquated. Uh, And like Paul, I worked at Credit Suisse before. And then McKinsey, my largest project at McKinsey was turning around a jewelry retailer. And I was like, wow, "Wow, there's a lot of
1: opportunity here. And then there we are. All right. Explain to me this thing. I know nothing about it. You know, I'm going to say natural mined diamonds versus lab-grown diamonds. I didn't even know there was really a thing for lab-grown diamonds. Talk to us about lab-grown diamonds. Yeah, so they've been gaining popularity over the last three years. So
4: 2018, the FTC said a lab-grown diamond is a diamond just like a natural diamond is. The only caveat is you have to disclose that it's lab-grown. Since then, the industry has really taken off. So in 2020, there were roughly 2.3% Of all diamonds sold, now they're over 10%. And and the growth rate obviously is is fantastic, but in terms of unit volumes, even more so now. Um, I think part of why they are so attractive is now they are trading at 75% to 90% cheaper than their natural mind equivalent. Really? And what what do they look like? How do they? So they are optically, physically, chemically identical to natural. Um, So they really are a perfect substitute.
1: So what's that done for the price of natural diamonds?
4: That is that is a significant issue. So our industry generally has not been prone to technological disruption. Right. This is the first time. So over the last 12 months, diamond prices have gone down anywhere between 18 and 24%. Uh, and I think they're gonna go down by another 20 to 25% over the next 12 months. And
3: how did COVID play into that in the direction of diamond prices?
4: So, COVID was another anomaly for us, as many other industries. Um, Asset prices for diamonds specifically went up by 25% between, let's say, June 2020 and June 2022. Um, But that demand has now moderated. During COVID, people couldn't go out, uh, they couldn't eat out, they couldn't travel. A lot of that Uh, Stimulus money went into luxury, especially jewelry. And now we're seeing a moderation of that. But what's now causing the further dip is really technology and lab-grown diamonds.
3: And what exactly was the catalyst for those prices moderating?
4: Um, So demand has receded a little bit. Um, after uh, the pandemic has come off because now people are traveling a lot more. They're eating right. out a lot more. So they're balancing where they're spending their money again. Mm. So your company, um, over 400 employees, where are they and what do they do? Sure. So we have now 10 offices across the world. Um, LA uh, is our headquarters. Uh, India is our largest operation, followed by Thailand. Okay. And then Ireland,
1: UK, Australia, Canada uh, to add. Interesting. Okay. So talk to us about kind of some other gemstones and, and how, do, how do they compare as investments? Because I know a lot of people think about them. It's not just what I wear around on, on my finger or around my neck. It's an investment for me. How, do they, how, does, how does those gemstones perform? That's right, so
4: colored gemstones as opposed to diamonds are seeing a great boom over the last three years. So the S&P three-year Kager is around 11.5%. Rubies have gone up by 17% per year. Sapphires by 12% a year emeralds by 13 percent. Some of the more niche gemstones like opals and tourmalines are up anywhere from 20 percent a year to 36 percent a year. So they are crushing the S&P. So so there's this
3: growing appreciation for more colored stones as an asset class.
4: That's right. Yeah. So there's a few tailwinds that colored stones are experiencing. I think one is we're kind of going from this unipolar world where the U.S. dominated. So 10 years ago, the U.S. was by far the largest consumer of colored gemstones. Now we have India, which has historically been what I would describe as a, uh, as a gold jewelry market. Now, as they get more sophisticated, diamonds and gemstones are catching up. And China, gemstone consumption is even more so than in the US. So we have other tent poles across the world that are consuming more. So there's a supply-demand imbalance. At the same time, on the supply side, mines are genuinely running out of material that they're mining so for example the Burmese mine for rubies has shut down effectively the Kashmir mine for sapphires has shut down Columbia major emerald producer is really reducing output so at the same time the demand is rising supply is reducing and we think that's going to continue over the next few years um, I think the other thing for gemstones is when people are now realizing that diamonds are depreciating as an asset class traditionally both diamonds and gemstones have really been Inflation hedges. But because color stones are appreciating, more and more money is going there uh,
1: that we see. You think about some of those spy movies where <laughs> right. you'd get payment in diamonds, you know, because you. Know, cause he- can't have, take all that cash. Right. But now that's not such a good thing. Right? So yeah. Something I was curious about yeah. is
3: what happens if you have it juxtaposed where diamond prices are falling, but then you have these gemstone prices that are rising? Is there a typical something that can happen there with the swings in prices when you have them diverging like that?
4: Yeah, I, I think um, what we are seeing is much more of a transition to color because it is a better investment over time. The other thing is, I think just in terms of culturally, color is becoming much more. Uh, commonplace. So for example Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe, their higher-end watches, or most coveted watches, now have gemstone bezels around the the Mm. dial. Um, We think we also have a part of it. We're typically now known within the industry as the De Beers for Colorstone and the idea is, you know, starting 1948, De Beers came out with the diamond is forever, uh, and the four C's, and there was this idea that there is a singular perfect diamond, which is the D flawless. Now, us as a society, we've changed considerably, where we're celebrating uniqueness, we're celebrating diversity, we're also celebrating what we like rather than what we're told we should like. And that transition, we're
1: moving the market towards color with really a focus on education and customization of jewelry. All right, 30 seconds left. What's the future of your company over the next few years? You got, uh, what, 100 million in revenue, roughly?
4: That's right, so we've grown 4X in the last three years. Uh, Our next target is a billion dollars I think we can achieve in five years, Uh, so that's the goal.
1: Really? Awesome. That is good. We're going to keep in touch with this guy. I mean, <laughs> Bring and, him back. Uh, yeah, awesome. That, well, congratulations. Fascinating discussion. I learned a ton there, uh, particularly about the lab-grown diamond prices. So do you I mean, do you go to your fiancé and kind of slip in a like, real diamond, but it's a lab-grown one? I don't know. What do you do there? I mean,
3: look at these emeralds. This is my birthstone, so I keep looking at that up about... <laughs> this year. Yeah, good stuff.
1: (laughs) All right, Ankur Daga, thanks so much. CEO of Angara joining us here live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio talking about the the jewelry business. Fascinating discussion. We will follow uh, Ankur's company going forward.
9: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller.
1: I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.